All right, we're continuing through our study in the book of Hebrews. This is our seventh message, and it's the sixth warning. We did a little introduction for the first message. So we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. Hebrews chapter 12. And the, the warning to believers is, do not become bitter. This is a reality for a lot of people, especially in Bible-believing churches. There's bitterness that creeps in. But there's also bitterness that comes from an improper attitude toward, toward the chastening hand of God. Um, my wife and I, when we were first starting this adoption process, we had to get home study approved. And that basically means the state comes in and they check your house for fire extinguishers, you know, stuff like that. Make sure you have a proper place to live uh, and bring a little one in. But another thing that they ask you is, you know, how do you plan on parenting? And so Kyla and I, I don't want to say we've never thought about it, but up until that point, we had not thought about it seriously as to how do we plan to parent. And really, the question the state wants to know is, you know, corporal punishment, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they have their policies and all that. But uh, they can't really control what happens in the home. But they do recognize that there's a potential for people to try and scam the system to get, a kids, and, uh, to get kids and abuse them. That does happen, sadly, especially in foster care. But with adoption, it made us think, how do we want to discipline our kids? And you realize very quickly that there's a right way and a wrong way, and then there's a better way. And I think the better way is to pattern the discipline after the way God disciplines us. And Hebrews 12, when we get to this warning in verse 14, there's a lot that is discussed in the beginning of the passage that I think we need to go through before we understand the warning. I think we've all seen this. You may have even been a certain kid like this where... You had good discipline, but you did not have a good attitude afterwards. And this can happen a lot, especially with younger kids. And the idea is for you to, to, to recognize the decision I'm about to make, number one, it's wrong because I've had a standard set by my parents. And if I make a decision that is wrong, I'm going to receive sure punishment. It's not a wait and see thing. It's like, I know if I do this, this will happen. And you're supposed to what? You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to learn how to make the right decision. A lot of times, especially in strict Christian homes, and I say strict in a negative sense, there's an expectation to do everything right because that's what your parents told you to do. And that'll only go for kids if that's the only reason why they should obey. That will only be sufficient while they're in your home. Because as soon as they get out of the home, they've not been taught to obey mom and dad because God says to do that, and ultimately they need to obey God. They've only been taught you obey mom and dad. So now when mom and dad are gone, these kids get sucked up into the world, and they get introduced to new things, and their obedience does not last long because they've only been taught to obey in the home. Well, what happens outside of the home? That's why I think the answer you know, why can't I do this? Uh, because I said so, I think it's a temporary Band-Aid, but it's not the best. And, and if kids are to the place where they can understand, okay, I'm not to do this because it's wrong. The Bible says I shouldn't lie. My parents are telling me, do not lie. That lines up with what God said, and there's going to be punishment if I am found to be lying. Of course, you go through each one of these circumstances. But as we were getting ready to adopt, I really dug into this passage because I think this is where we see the clearest method of discipline that God uh, puts upon his children. There is no doubt that discipline from God is grievous. Okay, and you're going to see that in the scripture tonight. It's a hard thing. There is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that believers have to learn, and some of us have very, very hard heads. Some of us, it takes us a lot for us to learn. And those of us who are wise, we will obey the Lord the first time. And you'll see benefits from that. But the thing that can happen with some of God's children is they develop bitterness because they respond well to chastening, but they begin to compare themselves to other children in the family. Now, God deals with all his children the same. He holds the standard the same. But not all of his children see him discipline his other children. 
Now, that's kind of different. If you're in a home with a lot of uh, kids, you see everybody gets in trouble. I think classically, as a kid, I remember the way our house is situated. We each had our own bedroom, but the end of the hallway was right where my brother Casey's room was, and my room was right here, and Cody's room was right here. And for some reason, we would all like to take the balled-up socks that were folded, you know, and we like to throw them. And you could get them going pretty good to where you could hit somebody in the face. And it never hurt, right? But uh, it was annoying. And you knew if you said, ow, or stop throwing that at me, immediately you get the attention of my dad. Because he don't want to be bothered with that. And why are we throwing socks? That's a whole thing. You can throw socks at each other, but you can't put them in the laundry bin. It was a recurring thing in our house, three boys, you know. But I remember there were some times where Casey would be the ones throwing the socks, or Cody would, or I would, and we would see each other get in trouble. Okay, that was, you know, easy because you're in the same home. I don't think it works that way with God's children. I don't think it's the responsibility of believers to try and inspect other believers' lives to see if you're being disciplined or not. That's a private matter between you and your Heavenly Father. Now, there are some consequences that are made public, and we see that from how Jesus describes how uh, conflict resolution should go. If you have a problem with a brother or you've caused offense, you go to the person. And by the way, you need to know that and do that. If you have a problem with somebody, you should not talk to other people about them. If they're not a, prob- uh, a part of the solution, you should go directly to them. It's, it's a very sad thing to see a church split. And most of the time, it's, it's, uh, it gets to that point because it's not properly resolved where people need to go to one another and talk to them. Of course, if you talk to a brother who's in an error and they don't change their ways, now you have to go with two or three witnesses, then you bring them before the church, and there is such a thing as church discipline. I think that's a system that Jesus has set in place because it gives people opportunities to get right. And that's what I want to focus on tonight before we get into bitterness and not becoming bitter God wants you to get right. He doesn't seek to destroy you for every single thing that you do wrong. However, if you don't get right with him, then destruction is on the way for you. And not eternal destruction, but being disciplined here on this earth, and yes, being taken home well before your time. That happens because you don't respond well to discipline. And that's a choice that you make. But I don't think it's the job of us as Christians to go around with my, uh, you know, magnifying glasses and go, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I need to see God's discipline in your life to know if you're really saved. That's another weapon and tool of Calvinist teachers. You know, they'll, well, as far as a Baptist perspective goes, they'll say you've got to be really, really sorry for sin in order to make sure that your conversion was true. The Bible doesn't say that that's a requirement for salvation. But uh, godly sorrow is worked by repentance. And that doesn't mean that every single person is going to be moved and grieved by their sin. That's not what that says. Simon the sorcerer, I think, is a really good study because Simon the sorcerer, he knew enough to put it together that he got saved and then Philip baptized him. I don't think Philip would have baptized him without going through and making sure he understood why he was getting baptized. But then right after that, Simon the sorcerer was rebuked strongly by Peter for trying to buy the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit because as a sorcerer, Simon just wanted to add it to his bag of tricks. He could do magic. He wants to raise people from the dead. He wants to heal them, you know, all that kind of stuff that the apostles were doing in that time. And he was really strongly rebuked for that behavior. Nothing else is said about Simon. We don't know if that worked uh, a great work in his life. We don't know how sorry he was before he came to faith in Christ. That's why I think we should just say what the Bible says, in that if you want to get saved, you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. So do that, because I can show you chapter and verse where that is, and I think there's a reason for that, because God wants it to be simple and clear. But as far as discipline goes, we're not supposed to fruit inspect each other to see Are you really saved? Because if you're not really saved, then you're illegitimate. We'll go over that verse in a moment. And therefore, you've got to get saved again. Well, now you become the person who verifies someone else's salvation, and that's not a good position to be in. Even when we do our new members classes, and I sit with people and I listen to their testimony, it's not my job or the board's job to determine if they are, quote, really saved, end quote. It's my job to make sure, do they understand how to be saved? That's what's important. Because you can have somebody coming in 
to you know a new members class and they want to they want to share how they trusted Christ and they say something that makes sense to them but when you dig a little deeper you can see what they really mean and this is important for clarity because we want to be clear and if we're not then we're helping the devil promote something that's not true but when it comes to discipline I never even when I have to do church discipline which we have had to do before I never try to see is this discipline a proof that they're saved? My response, this is how I look at it, especially in counseling sessions. I say, how willing are they to get right with God? That's the measurement of whether we're going to be successful or not. If a person, let's say you're doing couples counseling, for example, and you've got, you got two people. One of them wants to get everything right. The other one doesn't. I know right away the problem is the one who doesn't. That's going to be the level of success here. So I'll peel that person off and counsel them privately and try to figure out, why don't you want this to get better? Most of the time, it's bitterness. Well, they never did this, and they always do that, and I'm never included in this way, so I'm done. So now you're going to come back, and especially in a marriage, you're going to come back, and you've got one person concealing how they really feel and the other person being honest and transparent. You think that's going to work? It's not going to work. Where's the problem? In the person who is unwilling to change, unwilling to make the changes needed to get right with God. That's all of counseling, by the way. You want to find out how to be a good biblical counselor? Ask people, how serious do you want to be in obeying what God's word says? And if a person says, I want to obey God's word, then you can say, good. Let me tell you where you're wrong. You told me you want to obey God's word, so here's what you have to do. And many people, it's a tough pill to swallow, but guess what? They start doing what God's Word says. They experience joy. It may be painful at first, as we're going to look at here. But there are people who, they follow the Lord, they do things correctly, but they have hidden rebellion. And that's what I want to talk about now before we get into the Scripture here. I took a class by Tom Kakuza um, called Family, Family Life and Principles, something like that. But he did a very good job. It's on his website. I should, we should probably try and link it and get it on our website somehow as a resource. But he did a really good job of how you can spot rebellion in your kids. Okay, Every single one of us in this room are rebellious. Okay, Just depends on how rebellious you are. But we all have rebellion in us. It's a part of our sin nature. And the thing that Dr. Kakuza brought out was when it comes to discipline, if there's one thing that you need to be consistent on as parents, it is disciplining and identifying rebellion. And it comes in two forms. And each kid is different. I'm telling you right now, you all know that. And I think everyone's looking at me going, oh, he's got an eight-month-old. Just wait, right? But I already see it now. I'll tell you a little bit this afternoon. Remy was crawling. And by the way, she used to have to take a little break between her little army crawls. But now it's like... And she's got her, her uh, left foot, her toe is like the pivot push-off toe. So she's really getting started and moving. But she'll come off of her play mat. We just saw this today, and Kyle and I were like, hmm. Comes off her pl- play mat. She'll go off of the play mat onto the carpet and then onto the tile. And she kind of looks around. And then she'll go towards the shoes. Okay, well, what is a baby going to do with shoes? They're going to wash their hands and put gloves on and inspect and handle the laces and stuff. They're going to stick it in their mouth. That's what they're going to do. Eh. Well, I want to see how this tastes. So we tried it. I looked at Kyla. I was like, we should call her name sternly and see what happens. That's what we did. We went, Rem? Remy? I kid you not. She looked back. Like, I don't know how much she knows, but she at least knew... The, my parents are getting my attention for something. Then she slowly turned back towards the shoes and did what she wanted to do, right? And so I got to get up, get her, reposition her. But I told Kyle, I was like, you know, this is kind of an interesting development. Number one, we got name recognition, but we've also got, I'm being told maybe not to do something and I'm going to go back to what I was doing anyway. So we kept trying that and of course it was the same thing. But rebellion is spotted in two different ways. First, the, the first one, and this is the most common, it's an outburst. 
not an outburst of volume, but it's, it's on the outside. You can see the rebellion. Right? There's tantrums, fits, whatever it may be. They express that they are not happy. You're asking them to do something that they don't want to do. That's easy to spot. Then there's the other kind, which is much harder, but it's the, the hidden rebellion. It's the kind where there's not a vocal outburst or a tantrum. There's just, you know, the, they don't lash out or anything, but on the inside they're thinking, I will not obey you. I will do what I want to do. And kids are different. There's no way to find out before that happens what kind of rebellion they'll have. But when that rebellion is spotted, good parents discipline that rebellion. There's a conversation that's had, and then whatever form of discipline you've come up with, you execute it consistently, because this is how God is going to deal with us. That's the heart of our problem. God has set, said, do these things, do not do these things, and we choose to do the things he says not to do. That's rebellion. We can trace it all the way back to the garden. But there are some of God's children, and especially some kids in a multi-kid family, who see discipline or don't see discipline and they're doing right, and then they get angry when someone else gets perceived blessings that they should have gotten. It's the, it is the prodigal son, the one who stayed home, and he did everything right, and the prodigal son went off, spent his inheritance, which, by the way, was an extremely offensive thing to come to your father before he died and ask for your inheritance. You're basically saying... I don't care that you're alive. I want what you would get when you die. And he goes off and spends it, lives riotously, becomes a beggar. He's eaten the slop that the pigs are eating. He comes back. Dad's like, my son stops all the work, kill the biggest calf that we've got, have a great feast. And the son who was, he remained faithful this entire time. He's saying, I stayed here this whole time. That's not fair. But the focus of the story, many people think, is on the prodigal son. I, take, I seem to take the opinion that I think a lot of that focus is on that son who was faithful and obedient and had all the responsibility, but he had a hidden heart of rebellion. He did things because it lifted him up. It's a perfect description of the Pharisees. They had access to everything at all times, and they still used it for themselves. Both of the kids are wrong. One of them, it was outward. The other one, it was inward. And if you're wise tonight, you go home and you ask yourself, which one am I? Because you are rebellious. You're alive and breathing. You've got rebellion in you. Do you outwardly disobey God or do you try to hide it? Do you try to deceive others and deceive him? He'll get what he needs to get out of you so that you come to a point of, I'm going to change my mind and get right. But especially when you're parenting, if you as a parent can identify that with your kids, it's going to be so helpful with how you discipline them, how you communicate with them. So let's get into the scripture. Verse 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 3. Let's start with verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The, the encouragement here is think on Jesus when you are tempted to give up and give in. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Endure that chastening from the Lord. It is for your benefit. Now, I, I always like to argue from the counter opinion, which is this would not be in here if it wasn't a possibility for us to do. If every Christian was automatically going to respond perfectly and yes, dad, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I'll get right with you. If that was the response of every believer, then they wouldn't have to write this. This wouldn't have to be told us, but this is not how we are naturally. We need that correction. These reminders, verse six. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You know this, I know this, we love our kids. We love them so much 
that we're willing for them to go through difficulties so that they don't end up with a poor quality of life. I love my daughter. And I know if she starts walking around and trying to explore with a, a wall outlet or something, I got to make sure she knows that's dangerous. I can't just go, well, you know, it's how she feels and I don't want to hurt her feelings. She could have serious injury. That's why it's crazy what's going on with parents allowing their kids to dress in a different gender. I don't get that. I don't see how that's cute or a, a, a smart thing for those kids. But can you imagine if we let kids do whatever they want? No one would get past four years old. <laughs> They'd all, something would happen to them tragically. And we've got to be careful that we're not putting the kid as the one who rules the home. But the focus here is in verse 6 where it says, whom the Lord loveth. He still loves you. Even though he's already sent his son to die on the cross for you, his love does not stop there. This was kind of a big thing for me as I studied this passage. It's a very encouraging reminder that God is not inconsolably angry with me all the time. It wasn't like he was this taskmaster, like this drill sergeant, okay? Like just expecting me to show up, do my job, and go home. But instead, he was a loving, he is a loving father. That's a totally different thing, isn't it? This is not your boss. This is not someone that you work for. This is your dad. This is somebody that loves you and cares about you and has plans for you and wants to bless you and has things to share with you. That's a totally different approach. Helps me as I serve God. When I'm tempted to sin, I think, do I want to do that to the one who loves me and cares for me? It's a good reminder. But we're encouraged here, not that we would, you know, don't worry, he's not going to spank you, he loves you. As a matter of fact, it's different. It's because he loves us, he will discipline us. And you need to be reminded of that. That's what he says. Verse 7, if ye endure chastening, you go through it, and you allow it to make a difference. God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Okay, what's, what's he saying here? What kind of dad doesn't discipline his kids? That's what he's saying. Not a, not a good one. And so we're talking about God, perfect father. What kind of father would he be if he didn't discipline you? So we should expect this, right? This should not be a surprise. We should know it, look for it, and when it happens, we go through it. And he actually gives a pretty strong Statement in verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. What does this mean? It means you're, you're illegitimate. Why? Because I don't go around. God's not going to go around disciplining people that are not his kids in this way. I don't go into Walmart and I say, every kid who's throwing a fit, bring them to me. That's not my job. That's the job of those parents. It's, I, I, I got no business coming into somebody else's responsibility. That's exactly what it is. Into another parent's responsibility, no matter how much they're fulfilling that or abandoning that responsibility, it's not my, they're not my kids. I don't go in and discipline those kids. It's not my job. That's the job of the parents. So if you're a child of God and you'll be a child for God forever, of God forever, you can expect discipline because he's the perfect heavenly father. And I want you to take note of the middle of verse 8 here, whereof all are partakers. Again, I don't see anything here that says, and we should all see it. We all know the disciplining hand of God. And no, it's not, oh man, I'm just having a really bad day today. God must be chastening me. You'll know what it is. Most of the time, what it is, is a stark reminder that you are disobeying. The more that you read the Bible and become sensitive to it, the more you will experience the chastening hand of God. And there'll be things you, you, you look back on and you go, oh. And there are things, and we're going to look at this in the passage later, that you can do that you'll never be able to undo. And that's a sad thing. 
And God will not change those things. There are things you do where you just cross a line. I remember I was at the Jacksonville State Penitentiary um, prison when I was uh, doing, uh, what's the other name? Bill, Bill Glass, right? Is that it? Uh, behind Walls. And we would go into the prisons and talk to people. And I remember sitting across a man, big guy. He was in for a life sentence. But I think he, actually, I think it was like one of those 33 years to whatever, and he didn't have enough time. He was going to die in prison. Shared the gospel with him. He trusted Christ. And, you know, we're talking, and I remember (laughs) they were telling Tyler Hamby, I don't know if y'all remember Tyler Hamby, he went to school here. They were telling Tyler Hamby how they would take all these different snacks and stuff and make, like, the cookie sandwich and all that. And, And so it was kind of a joyous time. The inmates were sharing some things with us, and we were talking with them. It was very lighthearted, but, you know, what was looming is, like, we get to go out into freedom, and they stay here, you know, some of them for the rest of their lives. And this guy that I was talking to, while that was going on, he was just crying at his table. And I can only assume the reason why he was crying is because it's just, he, he recognized that his sin is paid, but it doesn't change his consequences here. And I think there's a design to that. I think God uses that person as an example. You disobey me, this may be your future. And you will have no one to blame but you. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. I think most of us here experience that kind of correction. I don't know if that's true of all kids today. It's almost frowned upon to discipline your kids. And I'm not talking about spanking your kids. I'm talking about telling your kids no. I've seen parenting models you know, where it's like, tell your kid yes to everything. That's a bad idea. You want to raise somebody that nobody likes? <laughs> Sorry. But seriously. You want to raise someone who doesn't understand how to live with other people? We're seeing that today. We're seeing what that's become. Those kids will go on to serve in Congress. They'll be voted into office. You know, just as a side note, you look at what's going on with the president's son and the treatment that he is getting for proven verified crimes. There's There's a difference there. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us And we gave them reverence. We gave them respect as they corrected us. So he's arguing from a truth to ask a question that is implied to be true. Look what it says. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? If we listened to our fleshly fathers and gave them respect as they disciplined us, shouldn't we do that for God? Who's better? Our dad? Or God, our Heavenly Father. I'm going to go with our Heavenly Father. Love my dad to death. He didn't do everything right. And I'm not going to do everything right when it comes to our kids. But I know God will. So I'm going to trust the discipline He puts me through. Because it's not just because He woke up upset today. God doesn't even wake up. He's awake all the time. For they, verily, verse 10, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. That doesn't mean they did this in an evil way, like they got pleasure out of hurting the children, but they did it as they saw fit. It was at their, their leisure. They have, that oper- they have that freedom within the family. But it says here, but he, referring back to the Father of Spirits in verse 9, he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, there's a principle and doctrine to understand here. We are set apart the moment that we believe, but there's coming a day when we will be fully set apart and reserved for God, and that's at our glorification. But we can experience that holiness now. We don't have to wait. We don't have to say, I'm going to live like the devil because one day, because I've trusted in Christ, I'm going to be set apart and won't have any sin. God will discipline you for that. You are encouraged and strongly warned not to do that. Have you been paying attention to anything that we've been talking about? I'm really talking to the people who have a problem with saved forever. 
they teach some type of lose it, earn it back again salvation, God will discipline you as you disobey. The encouragement here is be partakers of holiness through the discipline that God gives you now. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven. It drives me up a wall when I hear people say, well, God made me this way. No, he didn't. You need to get that thought out of your mind. That's a very dangerous, toxic thought. Well, God made me this way. God did not make you with a horrible sin nature, with a horrible tongue, with a bad attitude. He didn't say, oh, they're really going to have fun with this. He didn't do that. That sin, you've not addressed it, and you need to change it. There's that joke. Um, oh, I'm forgetting it off the top of my head. Oh, when, when someone gets a tattoo where it says, no regrets, right? And regrets is spelt incorrectly. And it's like, you have one. <laughs> you have one regret. <laughs> You've got one, and it's that word. Or when they get, you know, when people get a tattoo, and I'm not, not judging for that. that. That's not the point of this. But when people say, only God can judge, and they live lives in which God will judge, like, you need to listen to the truth of what you're saying and get right with Him. It's, it's, it's not like, we should not live wicked lives because, well, only God can judge me. He will. That's the silliest thing. But it's, 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 like, it's like the drumbeat of our culture today. Oh, up, 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 don't, don't, don't say that to me. You, don't you know you're a racist now? Goodness. We need to be careful and we need to set ourselves apart. We don't need to wait until the day that we're with the Lord. We can experience that separation unto a purpose now. Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Okay, this is a truth that we need to understand. The chastening hand of the Lord will require difficulty. And welcome that. Welcome it. Because, nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I, I saw this video recently of this guy. He's, he's, he's a fit guy, but he's not as fit as the weight he was trying to lift. And I, I really couldn't watch the rest of the video because he was doing squatting. And this guy, he could get up just fine. But as he started to get down, the weight buckled. You could see his arms flew back, and he just crumpled on to the floor. He was not ready for that level of weightlifting. What does he have to do to get there? He's got to go 15 or 20 pounds lower, get comfortable there, do a max out once a week to get himself built up, and over the process of what? Time and lactic acid on the muscle... He builds up the strength he needs to get to that weight he wants to lift. That is how our walk with the Lord is. It's work. It's going to be difficult at times because of our sin. But the more we walk in holiness for Him, the more that fruit is born in our lives. And that's what people can see. That's how you become a blessing to other people. You're obedient to God first. I love when David was caught in his, when Nathan caught him and said, Thou art the man that I described. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He was not discrediting Nathan. He was not discrediting Uriah, who he had killed so he could be with Uriah's wife. He was saying, I have sinned against God. Did he have consequences that lasted well after his confession? Yeah. Yeah. Absalom. What a heartbreaking, just a heartbreaking thing. And he also lost the child he had with Bathsheba. Child was sick for many days, and then the child died. That is David's fault. That's a hard thing to live with. And there there was a there was a there was a time when he just went over what God had allowed and said, look. I, this, this is going to happen. You've tried to hide this. I'm going to make it known. And there'll be consequences. I still love you. <laughs> Did God love David? Absolutely. And there were parts of David to which God said, 
very similar to the way I look at things. But there were other parts that had consequences. Verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight, verse 13, paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Instead of sulking and moping and woe is me, when you go through things that are your fault, stand up straight, walk forward with the Lord. Be healed through that discipline. And don't do it again. That's what I think is important here about the and make straight paths for your feet. Walking with the Lord. God's not zigzagging and doing all these things. He's walking at a steady pace and he's asking you to keep up with him. And you know the best way to do that is to grab hold of his hand. Just let him pull you if he needs to. And I know we can't really see that in the Bible and all that, but that's the illustration that I have in my mind. When I'm dragging behind, I need to reach out for my dad's hand. And I do that by reading his word and applying it in my life. And there are many times, trust me, God uses people to bring a point for me to look at and say, you need to fix this. I, I love that Kyla's willing to do that. My wife is so encouraging. She's a great encouragement to me. She's a great follower of the Lord. She's disciplined. She also does not bury me when I'm wrong, but she gives me grace. She also doesn't just let it go over for the sake of, I don't want him to be upset. She has a way of just telling me exactly what I don't want to hear in a way that I want to hear it. Does that make sense? She does not mince words just because I could be offended by it. I'm thankful for a woman like that. And I know that God will use her to help me. And sure, there's times where that's not fun. Yeah. But you know how I can avoid that? Don't do the silly, stupid thing, right? Do the right thing. You don't have to go through that. Now, verse 14 is really interesting. In that video that we made this week, this is what John MacArthur, uh, was it MacArthur? No, it was John Piper used this verse as something you have to do to get to heaven. Let's see what it says. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, what does this mean here? Does this mean that if we do not pursue holiness, as the Calvinist teaches, that we won't see the Lord? No, this is a reminder that no person in the end is going to see the Lord without being set apart. The entire passage talked about active response to discipline, which is God disciplining you for your sin. So look at verse, the end of verse 10. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And you look at the end of 14, without which no man shall see the Lord. In your glorified body, you're not going to be living the way you're living now. So don't live the way you're living now. It keeps people from believing on Jesus Christ. It keeps you from receiving God's blessing. Now here's our main point, and I did all that pre-work because we don't have a ton to cover here, but I want you to see where this is leading up. Look at verse 15. Looking diligently. I love those two words. This is an active kind of looking. It's not like how I look for things in the junk drawer, right? How does that go? You pull it open, you need the tiniest screwdriver, you look like this. I don't see it. You could probably look better by moving things out of the way and actually looking for something. I think a lot of people look at their Christian life that way. They're like, yep. Uh-huh. I don't see it, God. Did you really look? My uncle, my uncle, who's here tonight, when I would be looking for something, you know, I, you look like it when kids look like it. He's like, did you use your eyes? Did you, did you look for it? Like, uh, He's here, so he's fine with that. But he would get animated too and go, with your eyes? You know? Kyla does that too. But it's true. It's so true, right? It's so true. Like, if you don't want to find it, you're not going to try and find it. If you're angry and upset and you're just like, you know, you want the thing to materialize in your hand, you can throw an attitude and call it obedience, but it's not. That's that hidden heart of rebellion. But the way we're supposed to look is diligently, and here's why, lest any man fail of the grace of God, which comes through discipline, 
lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness does not just affect you. A bitter husband who doesn't get right will produce bitter children and his wife will be bitter. Now here's something important. I think that verse speaks for itself. There's not much commentary there. But here's what I was telling you about. You do things that you can't undo. Verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. What's significant about Esau? He sold his birthright. It was his. He sold it to his brother. That he could never change that. Although it was rightfully his, he could not get it back. There is sin and a stubborn, hard heart where you will, you will burn yourself from being used by God in particular ways. And even though you come to a change of mind and you're forgiven, it doesn't change the consequences. That is a very sober reminder Like we talked about last week, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God in Hebrews 10. He's not changed from who he was in the Old Testament. Look at the rest of 16. Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, what's the blessing? The blessing of the firstborn. Now, some people look at this word inherited and go, salvation, salvation, see? This is proof you can lose it. No. Esau lost physical blessings here on the earth. Big ones, too. Talking about property, cattle, land, uh, wealth. He lost it all because he sold it. Couldn't change it. And this is the part that is sad to me. The end of this verse. When he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What does this mean? This is a commentary. The Holy Spirit here is, is, is showing you the inside of Esau's mind, his soul. This is not to determine if he was saved or lost. What this means is, the Holy Spirit is telling us, Esau wept bitterly for what he had sold, but never came to the point of changing his mind for what he did. He was the classic, woe is me. Why would, this, why would God do this to me? But he's too blind to see that he's the one that brought it about. And no amount of crying was going to change that. No amount of sorrow was going to change that. He found no place of repentance. You're going to run into people like this, and you may become this person when you just continually keep sinning. There is a line you can cross. Pastor, what is it so I know where not to cross it? How about just don't come near it? That's like the big signs in the Grand Can- or in the Yellowstone National Park that you see everywhere about being gored by a bison, you go, I don't see any bison around here. This is in the middle of a gift shop. Should I be concerned? (laughs) It's a reminder, when you see the bison, stay away, because they could kill you. And still, you can go on the internet and find these knuckleheads getting as close as they can to the bison. They've seen the signs everywhere, and then they get gored. Oh, Well, they just flew too close to the sun, didn't they? No, they're knuckleheads. They're disobedient. They were warned time and time and time again, and they decided, I'm going to do it my way. And guess what happens? You get gored. I'm sure a bison could do some damage on you that you wish was different, but it's not. Some of us live with those consequences today. Not that you've been gored by a bison, but you've done things where God, in his discipline, has caused severe consequences that you can't change. 
the warning here is don't let the bitterness keep you from changing your mind up here. Because there's a difference. Let's say you got two people, they cross that line, and they both got consequences. One person, they get right with God. They confess it, and they still have the consequences. God doesn't take away the consequences, but they have a clean conscience with God that I know why this happened. God can still use that person. That child is somebody who's got scars, but they can be used. The other person did the same thing. God dealt with them the same way, but they don't get right with God. They blame the church. They blame you who are faithful. They blame me who teach the word. They blame God. Consequences don't go away, but that person is poison to the rest of the body. That's a person you don't want to be around. And you've seen these kind of people. Everything that happens to them is because they just got a bad roll of the dice. They're never wrong, but any, everything bad happens to them. The red flag should go up. You should go, why is that? Because what's the real test? Look at 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Look up here. Two people, right? Same sin, same consequence. Both went through grievous discipline from the Lord. Look at the rest of the verse. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So in our illustration, this was the person that let the discipline profit them. It was, it's how they were exercised, and they had peaceable fruit as a result. Didn't take away the consequences, but they were still be able to be used by God. This person is the end of verse 17. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He even maybe tried to look for a way that he could see that he was the one that was wrong in this situation, but never came to that conclusion. Whose fault is that? Is that a chemical reaction? Did he just need to have his chemicals properly aligned? No, he made a decision and he had a stubborn attitude. And when you see that in your kids, that's not a cute thing, folks. That doesn't mean you have to be merciless, but you've got to make sure they know that's not right. Because it's only going to get worse. And then God forbid you have children that go into the world as adults and they never get right with God. They may have trusted Christ at a young age, but they live a life of misery. Be careful that's, that's not the parent's fault because you did not lovingly discipline your kids. They may have had fun when they were little, but now as adults, they suffer. And I know people that have had horrible backgrounds. They come out great Christians. What's the difference? This. They read the Word. Many of them, they got saved read the word, and started to apply it. It's sweeter for them because they've gone through that drought without it. Can I just ask a question as we're closing here? How many of you trusted Christ before you were 18 years old? Yeah. That's, that's quite a bit of us. I think for us who trusted Christ as teenagers, we are the ones who can get really bitter because we don't know what it's like to live without truth to live without good Bible teaching and people that lovingly correct us. I see most people in, in, in my circle of influence who have really gotten a hold of the, uh, the Word of God and let it do a work in them are people that have trusted Christ well after they're 18. They're looking for it and they couldn't find it. And then when they did find it, it changed their life because they know what it's like to be without. Don't be that silver spoon kid who has to let the world eat them up, spin them out for them to learn a lesson. And that's the warning. Next week, we'll have the final one. And then I think there's a message after that where we kind of wrap everything up, but we might end it next week. But you can go ahead and close your Bibles. I hope that's an encouragement to you because it's, it certainly is an encouragement to me. And it's, it's sermons like tonight where 
when I'm done and I go home and I'm praying for you all, my prayer for you is that it would move you to action. I like this kind of teaching, this kind of study, because it tells me things I can do right away. I, I don't have to wait. I don't have to get a degree. I don't have to wait for the right moment. I can get right with God right now. I know that from 1 John 1, nine. But when I wake up tomorrow, especially after preaching a message like this or, or teaching in this way, the Word is fresh on my mind. And it, it helps me do the correct thing. And I want that for you. Because I'm not going to wake up with you tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be in your home. <laughs> I don't want that job. Because then, why are you really doing it, you know? Boy, isn't the Word of God good? I just love it. There's nothing better. Let me share with you the most important news in all the world, especially for the times that we live in today. This hand represents you and me. My wallet represents sin. I'm going to put that on top of my hand because we've all sinned. I'm going to let this hand represent Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of get all these things right and then you'll be accepted into heaven. Salvation is you can't do it. You are condemned. I sent my son in your place. And if you believe on him, you receive everlasting life and you'll have it forever. The message of the gospel is to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here tonight and that makes sense, I'd like to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I trusted Jesus Christ tonight. I know I'm going to heaven. Anyone at all before we close? I give this invitation over the internet too, right? Wherever you are, you can simply put your trust in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And you'll be forgiven of all of your sin, even the ones you've yet to commit. All of your sin is paid. And you are fully forgiven forevermore. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of correction and discipline, especially the reminder of Esau. I pray, Lord, that as we make mistakes, should the discipline be severe, that we would get the right attitude with you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.